City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance A warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in their 25th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to explore the realities of working in the theatre. Today's seminar is devoted to performers. We will learn how they became professionals, their work ethic, and their reasons for being in the theatre. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. And now, let me introduce our moderators. For this seminar, first, a distinguished member of the theatrical community and Chairman of the Board of Eugene O'Neill Theatre, George White, and Pia Lindstrom, theatre critic and TV personality. Now, please. Thank you. And next to me is Swoosey Kurtz, fantastic performer that we have all enjoyed so much. <laughs> She's won two Tony Awards for 5th of July and House of Blue Leaves, and now she is a double threat in the Mineola Twins. Uh, she's also won an Emmy and nine Emmy nominations. And next to her, the fantastic Brian Dennehy, who former football player who gave up uh, the playing fields for playing on the boards. He's been in over 40 films, but it is for his theatrical performances that I think uh, he is going to be just honored uh, for years. He is, as you know, Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, and it is a riveting performance. George. Thank you. On my immediate left is uh, Elizabeth France, who is recreating her uh, 1998 uh, role of Linda Lohman in Death of a Salesman. <laughs> and also won uh, the uh, nomination for Tony and Drama Desk uh, Awards for Kate Jerome in Brighton Beach. <laughs> um, uh, next to her is the extraordinarily well-groomed Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> today. In joke, sorry about that. Uh, and uh, who is playing Dan in Night Must Fall and is uh, the Tony Award winner uh, for uh, his performance in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Oh. <laughs> Uh, on the far left, which is not a political statement, um, <laughs> but actually is uh, uh, Kathleen Chalfant, who actually uh, was the understudy for Elizabeth France <laughs> in, uh, in the Playwrights Horizons, uh, since the Mary Ignatius play, uh, tells it all for you, explains it all for you, right? There you are. Played many times. And uh, played it on Sundays, I think. But actually now she is... Uh, doing a wonderful performance uh, of Vivian Baring uh, in the marvelous play Wit, currently. In the <laughs> to 
Nakia, over to you. Yes, to get things started, each one of you has, in this plan and another place, a moment that you coalesce somehow the whole meaning of the play, I have noticed. And I direct this specifically to you, Elizabeth Franz, because you've done it a couple of times in other plays, and, and you do it again. And I'm very interested in the, in the development, as you read the text, how you arrive at the central core moment. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful uh, question, because it is from reading, reading, reading the play with your fellow actors. And as you, we're sitting around, look how long did we work about, around this table and read and discussed it and said, now this moment is this and this moment is that and this. And that's what, and then when we get up on our feet and then the characters become developed inside of us before we know it, the, those moments are there, and it's, it's, it, they're, they're magical, in a way, through the eyes of, of, of the other actors. You know, it becomes, it's, it's a total ensemble mm -hmm. effort of developing that, those, those moments. I, I think, you know, Pia, bringing yeah. that up also relates to the whole business of research. Of, of right. researching a character too, which yes. comes comes into that. Too. Which yeah, How which we all yeah, which we all do have yeah. different different ways of researching. I think Elizabeth yeah. was a little startled uh, when she got working with us. Falls and I have done a lot of stuff together, and we spent the first two weeks of the rehearsal period telling stories. Funniest <laughs> stories you've ever heard in your if life. You, the last thing in the world you would think if you walked into that rehearsal room is to think that these people were rehearsing Death of a Salesman. <laughs> Hell's a poppin' might be more likely. <laughs> because, uh, but, but there is some kind of catharsis that we comes out of all this. We became a family that way. And, uh, mm -hmm. Through those stories. And I think it's also true that the more uh, difficult the material, the more laughter there is in the rehearsal period, because you have to keep your you yeah. have to keep yourself alive. And it's because it seems so impossible to yes. do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I wanted to add something to what Elizabeth said about the these moments coalescing, because you begin with the text, and then the company, and then the final part of the equation is when the audience comes. The audience. Yes. And and, and that makes the moments fly. Do you play off the audience? That is, you, it yeah. stimulates you to... Yes. I mean, it's hear it. who you you're what? communicating We're with. We're not so. that noisy in the audience, are no, we? No, no, but, but you can hear the silence, yeah. oh, the attention. Oh, the there's a palpable yes. energy, energy and an electricity oh, that either comes or doesn't. I mean, mm -hmm. that's one of the, the exciting and terrifying things about live theater, and I think one reason we all do it is that immediacy of, like, you're all giving us energy right now. We're getting energy from you. We're giving... It, it, it's really tangible. I mean, it's, it's an electromagnetic field that, that, and some nights you'll go out and there's no electricity in the air. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try and you just, you know, you tend to push it then, which is bad. It ain't going to be there that it's night. Amazing. Some chemical reaction of that collective, you all take on a collective personality. And, and some nights it's just, you can't put a foot wrong. It's just like you're, you're just channeling. The, yeah. the play is playing itself. It was so nice, amazing. It was nice when you feel like you're performing to a, <coughs> a group of 
tuberculosis patients. They laugh on the punchline. February is a particularly. I always want to stop the show and say, okay, now everybody cough. Cough, cough for the next two minutes. All right, that's it? Fine, let's go on. And people have various strategies about coughing. There are people who cough on the punchline. And then there are people who wait for the silences, yeah. thinking the silence. that they won't. How about, how about this one? The ones that drive me nuts are the ones sitting out there saying, I'm, I'm here too. <laughs> what about me? But then that's where the professionalist comes in. What do you do when you, reach, when you have that kind of an audience? As a professional, what well, do you do? My teeth are worn down. I'm going to tell you from <laughs> grinding my teeth. I'm trying to keep them I'm instantly in a rage. Sometimes, but I find that I have to every now and then uh, remind myself not to just focus. Sometimes you can get obsessed with that, and if you've, particularly if you've been in a run for a while, yeah. suddenly you find yourself. All I'm doing is listening to whether three people cough in this <laughs> moment or one person cough. Maybe somebody did have a cough. You know, it doesn't always mean. <laughs> well, it's true, and uh, so sometimes I think it's good to. Remember that there is a play on stage too, you know, like not to, you know what I mean? You can go, although you're always, uh, yes, you definitely you're, you're always listening. You play kind of crazy guy, so maybe it would feed into your rage there in this play you're doing, so maybe yeah, you could true. use it maybe. Yeah, 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 no, you try, you try to use uh, You don't everything. have the luxury of Kurt Mazur who walked off the oh. podium because of the coughing and then walk oh, back out. Oh, right, Although there's right. something for you to try. Sometimes <laughs> it's hostile. Sometimes the yeah, coughing is, is, yeah. a, is a way of saying, I don't like this, I think. Sometimes you can't do it. You can feel it. You can't feel it. Sometimes, that. sometimes. They're not really <laughs> This is, the, I already get where you're going, you know. <clears throat> I think when there are those moments that we were talking about, nobody coughs. Yeah, I think, yeah that's why I, I think, because other because times Because I've been like, in theaters, it's, Dead silence, yeah, that's yeah. and you wonder feeling. where the coffers are. And I think that they, you just don't yes. cough at that. Well, that's, that's why it's so frustrating because you know that when you have those moments, and all of a sudden everybody forgets to cough. Obviously, most people don't have to cough when they do. <coughs> but I think you're, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right, Matthew, about the uh, the fact that it, it is it can indicate. I think maybe maybe that's what's so frustrating about yeah. it. Yeah. Because it indicates to you I'm screwing up. Oh, right. yeah. Exactly. It's our oh, responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Our job yeah. is I've to I've done something wrong. The, and um, communicate the text Ralph Richardson and described acting as the art of keeping 800 people from coughing. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's that's not a bad wonderful. definition. That's yeah. wonderful. That was one, <laughs> one of our jobs. <laughs> and I think that one of the things you do when that happens, when you begin to feel that you're losing the audience, and it can be coughing or the dread cellophane, I actually feel people <laughs> should be should be uh, patted down for cellophane <laughs> right, yes. before they come Strip into search. the theater. But How about phones? Oh, oh phones, phones are bad. That's the latest. Yeah. We get oh, that a lot. We get what, about, what about the cardboard cups with the ice in it, though? Oh, that's... that's, that's the, now, that's yeah. something brand new. They're supposed to make sure that the cups are not there, but, but you hear the guy clicking it in the ice. Clicking <laughs> the I love this. I'll tell you <laughs> what a motive for homicide that is. <laughs> 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 but I think what you do finally, after you get over yeah. the immediate rage, figuring out what row the guy is in, so, is try harder. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, you just sort of set the, the job here is to get people's attention. And that's what you do finally. Because usually we don't pick up pieces of set pieces and hurl them into the audience, which is the immediate, <laughs> the immediate response. Because indeed it is a partnership. 
between what's going on on the stage and, and what's happening in the audience. You also can't focus on that one person who's screwing right. it up for because everybody else because, yeah. you know, there are the 99 people, the hundreds majority. of other people. <laughs> I mean, in the middle of the play it. the other night, this woman, I don't know if she just had a little synapse or what, but she went, Debbie! <laughs> <laughs> and I almost went, huh? And I, I had to, like, really work. Oh. She suddenly thought she saw Debbie. And she'd been looking for her for years, you know. And, and then people who talk out loud, who are used to watching television, and, and the other night, because I'm playing identical twins, we gotten through the entire play with just wonderful silence and attention and laughing. And suddenly, in the last scene, this woman way back in the house goes, which one is she? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, she's followed it up till now. <laughs> you know, they just have to concentrate, 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 focus. And what's focus. interesting is that you know from all of us that we have, there are two uh, kinds of consciousness going on all the time on the stage. The consciousness that's in the world of the play and, you know, we're not insane, so we know what's happening in the outside world. And it, for years, you think, oh, my God, there must be something wrong with me until you talk to your colleagues and discover that everybody does that, and that's Don't you the wish, job. Though, that you... Can I ask you other actors? Can I ask a question? Yes, 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 yes. Don't you wish you could turn off that little editorial yeah. voice yeah. that's always watching that's you? Oh, that was good. Oh, missed yeah. that laugh. Yeah. Whoops, that didn't go. Well, when that you're was at better your last best. night. When, oh. when you're at your best, don't, don't you think you're not hearing that when you're at your best? Yeah, or it's there. Yeah, when, when, when that odd time when you have a good time or, or a, mm -hmm. a scene goes you're just and you think wow I don't even know why that went well but it yeah. went well yeah. that, that's what I find the feeling is. but you can always room. remember afterward yeah. what happened which is a kind of wonderful Mm -hmm. A wonderful thing. It, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, 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 it's quite we, a remarkable we, uh, sales thing is interesting because it makes people talk back to the cast. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Howard Witt plays Charlie, and there's this great scene at, at, towards the end of the play where he, in effect, offers me a job out of charity. And uh, <coughs> we've got that scene pretty honed. So he says, I'll give you a job just for the hell of it, whatever it is. And there's this pause. And somebody in the audience says, take the job. <laughs> 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 and I say to myself, Jesus, if I did take the job, we could all go home right now. I wouldn't mind some nights. <laughs> I gotta face Kevin Anderson at the end when he beats the crap out of me for about that. <laughs> but you know, there is there is the old vaudeville thing, which was the old rubric, which is if they if they cough, go back five minutes. That's really for playwrights. Oh. You know, back up five oh minutes because uh, somewhere wrong. five minutes earlier you, you lost, lost them. You lost mm -hmm. lost them. Do you see a difference in audiences and as you have gone through from play to play through the years? Is there a difference in today's audience to the ones ten years ago? No, I mean I going to the theater. I'm always. It's always interesting to me that people often attack the audience, and I've been in the theater in New York for 26 years and played only for American audiences, and I find them. Astounding. New York audience. New York audiences are, audience are amazing. Yeah. Smart. They're not better than Chicago. You, I don't know. I've never no. played in Chicago. But I mean American audiences, because yeah. I think we've all played all around the country. Best audiences I've ever played to were in Dublin, I have to tell you. We did the Iceman Cometh in Dublin and they were the smartest. There's a there's a whole sequence that starts in the first act when uh, Jimmy Tomorrow he's always talking about uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to go to the laundry tomorrow, I'm going to get my suits out of the thing. And, and mm -hmm. what happens, it's a repetition of a theme. And usually by the third or fourth time he r does that, the American audiences would start to laugh. Mm -hmm. 
getting the joke. This is a guy who's always talking about tomorrow, which of course is true. In Dublin, because of the Irish, the first time he said it, there was a scream because they knew exactly what, what the guy was about. Knew where you were going. They were so smart. They're such a literate bunch yeah. of them. Was this at the Abbey or the At gate? the Abbey, yeah. 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 But, but I find our, you know, our play is about cancer and John Donne. You would think <laughs> box office poison, but in fact, <laughs> people have been people have been coming, and, and the audiences are immensely sophisticated about John Donne. And it's everybody. Now we've now run out of our friends, so it can't just be people we know. These are, <laughs> audiences are coming to the play, and it and I think that people come if it's good, and if it's good, people get what it is that you're. In fact, not what you're, but what the writer is trying to say, because in the end, that's what we're doing. What we're our job is to communicate what, what the writer meant to say, and people. I this is I'm now in this play called Wit, which is, and the last uh, play that I was in that won a Pulitzer Prize was Angels in America, another extremely difficult and then very long play. This is a short play, this is a very long play, and people flocked to it. Um, and understood it. It was very difficult and sophisticated because it was good. That's Both what's so exciting this death. year. Yeah. This year is so exciting because there are so many wonderful plays on serious straight plays. Some three hours, ours is three hours, ten minutes sometimes. Yeah, unfortunately, most of them are 50 years old. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Then, uh, we were discussing that. The American playwright is an endangered species right now. But we do have these wonderful plays, whereas last year it was all musicals, mm -hmm. a few years back. And here we are, we have a community of actors that we see each other constantly. Now we're all back on the boards. It's the most exciting season mm -hmm. in many, many years. I bought a, bo a boater yesterday. You did? Yeah, a straw hat I'm going to start wearing. Yes. Back on the boards. Back on the boards. Well, you know, uh, that, that is interesting that, of course, Wit is, is a new play. Uh, and it brings me back to the idea of research, too, because I mean, the, the plays, almost all the plays that are represented here, with the exception of Wit, have had a life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how influenced or non-influenced you are with the roles. I mean, you know, Lee J. Cobb was uh, the first one, and uh, I, I'm just thinking about it. I, I, I can't go back to Night Woods. Well, I don't know who was who played Dan, but I wish I could haul that one out of my memory. Emlyn, right? I didn't Emlyn see Emlyn it. Williams, was the writer. Williams. It was Williams. Wrote it, wrote okay. it for himself. Yeah. Robert yeah. Montgomery did yeah. the movie, and Albert Finney did another movie. Yeah. So how influenced are, that, that's, there's a lot of things I want. And the other thing is, having come out of, in, in terms of salesmen, you did it in Chicago. There was a hiatus to a degree, wasn't there, between yeah. that and here. Like how do you get that back, or what do you do? How did, did you change anything from Chicago to here? Well, the oh, set a lot had of changed. Questions. The set had been reduced, uh, much smaller. And, uh, but we just went back to the boards. We went back to the table, sat around and read it, and we had the Arthur there. The difference was that Arthur was Arthur there, there. Oh. which was yes. a little bit uh, intimidating. <laughs> I, kept, I kept watching. We were rehearsing on stage. Yeah. Arthur sitting at the table next to Bob Falls, the director, and I was watching Falls, and Falls was watching Miller. But we got through it all right. He liked it. So. Yeah. And he had wonderful notes. Wonderful Extremely notes. helpful. Ex uh, oh. I mean... Why shouldn't he be? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but he was great. He, and, he, and he loves this production, and he's been a, a real part of it. So, uh, oh. 
That's been a real positive. But that, and it was exciting having those six weeks off because we were rested. Also, the, the character had lived inside of us, knowing that we're going to, it's coming out again. And, and it just, it kind of, like soup, it just gets flavor. Well, also, there was a kind of an extraordinary uh, tension about this situation because of the 50th anniversary. They decided to reopen the play on exactly the 50th anniversary, so there was a tremendous amount of hoopla about it. And that's good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, it can really take your focus away, but we all survived it. We mm -hmm. got through it, and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's what's the bad part of it? I know it's well. Good it's part distracting. It can be distracting. <laughs> you know, you get you say to yourself that last week before you open, you say, "If I ever, I can just get through all of this stuff and just do the play." Yes. Um, <clears throat> and of course, you never really get through all the stuff, but. Uh, because there's always something there's else. There's always something there. else. No. No. But it is—it's the, the judging, which is often the most difficult part of a, of a production. And you just think, if we get through the day when the New York Times comes, then we get the play back. Whatever happens, yeah. whatever anybody says, whether it's well received or not, for, for from the day that the New York Times comes until the play closes, it's ours and the audience's. Well, we had the very it's peculiar situation feeling. of having gotten. Yes. A rave review from Ben Brantley in the New York Times in Chicago, which is one of the reasons why the play came to New York. Mm -hmm. And so now we're opening in New York, and we're going to get reviewed you again. Do it again. Yes, I know. I'm scary. I'm saying to myself, the way my career goes, he'll hate it in New York. We were all saying that. But, I know. Uh, we, no, we, we were, not we were terrified. God. It's a terrifying situation. Well, yours is not reality-based. You know, we have these heavy stories going on here. You are in a, in a fantasy yeah. world here. But a serious play, play, this you play, play, too. It is, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very real in a way. When I first mm. read it, I, I thought, this is brilliant, but I don't understand a word of it. I mean, I really didn't. Um, it, the writing is so breathtaking, and it's hilarious, but it is very dark and very biting and painful underneath and um, it's just a feast for an actor I just get to do everything yes you're two people so yeah. and now I get to play <laughs> yeah, I took all the parts <laughs> <laughs> all those times in your life as an actor where you're saying god I wish I had more scenes I wish I had more lines <laughs> why couldn't I have gotten her part you know you're sitting backstage reading or needle pointing I I'm going like, can we cut this speech I mean I never stop talking except I'm off stage the only time I'm off stage is to make 17 split-second wardrobe and wig changes yes. and intermission. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it's, um, yes, unlike your guys, it's a brand new play by Paula Vogel. And um, it's uh, brilliant. Yeah, not only do I get to play two people, Myra and Myrna, the good twin and the bad twin, but I get to play them from age 17 to like late 40s, so really I'm playing eight or ten different people because you're a different person at 17 than you are at 35, whatever. And we start in the Eisenhower administration, we go through to the Bush-Reagan years, and it's just, it's a ride for me and the audience. What did you do for research on that? Or I've never you? been to Mineola. Oh, <laughs> um, I believe in research to a certain extent, as much as it's practical, as much as it will immediately help you apply to the play. Um, I, I just don't, you know, I don't think that you have to have gouged out your lover's eyes to play Medea. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that, you know, you, you, that's what we do. I mean, that's our technique is 
what if I wanted to murder someone? What if I, you know, that's where the imagination comes in, and that's where our art comes in. And um, obviously, yeah, if you're playing a doctor or you're playing, you know, definitely as much research. In film and television, very often, you, you have no time for research. But you the, just to make the really playwright does a lot of research yeah. for you right. and, and, and mentions the, the, the correct amount mm -hmm. of things. It's our job to make it alive, mm -hmm. to bring it up and make it spontaneous and alive. And, it, and you can get too far into your head with research and something like the Swoozy is, is doing, you can't. You've got, you've got to be fast. I mean, I've never, I've, I'm an only child, for instance, so I've never had a sister and I've played a lot of sisters. and I. I'm now playing two sisters who, who, who basically want very, very much to connect, but they also want to kill each other. I mean, it's that, that sibling thing that I really is something alien to me. Now, that I had to do some research on because I've never wanted to mm -hmm. kill, uh, you know, my sister. What, I mean, you know, people talk about when they grew up and they wanted to strangle their brother and they tried to bash <laughs> his head into this pavement. And, and uh, this was like, really? I mean, this was so mm -hmm. foreign to me. You could use your agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, no. sense memory, yeah. <laughs> right. So you use you use those other things in your life where you have wanted to bash someone's head in. When and, did you um, first get the play? Pardon? When did you first get the play in California? I got the play in um, July. Mm -hmm. I've known I was going to do it since July, and um, we we had a reading of it at the Roundabout in New York, and we all just read through it, and and. It was just, you know, instantly we all fell in love, and that was it. And they said, you got to do it, and I said, i got to do it, and they said, you know, the theater's got to do it. And so, so pretty much um, since then, I've known. But there, there's only so much work you can do at home, you know, before mm -hmm. you get with the other people. You have to get together. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Kathleen, there is, a, 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 tragically, you know, you, uh, I was reading about how much your, old, your older brother influenced you. Now that must have been, I mean, that wasn't, that was unfortunately on-the-job research, if you will. And that must have spoken to you a great deal, did it not? It, it did. It's one of those odd times when your life and your work come together in a... You might explain that a little bit. My, I'm, it, <coughs> in fact, the day that the play came to me, this play, which is about someone who was dying of ovarian cancer, I discovered that my brother who was my much older brother, my 14-year-old brother who had been my mentor all, uh, um, had been diagnosed with cancer. And his, the passion, I like to call it, of his cancer exactly coincided with the making of this play. So that in an odd way, he died just a year ago on the 17th of April. And uh, we did the first production of this production of the play at the Long Wharf Theatre, uh, the fall before so I learned from the play in some way how to help my brother at the end of his life and I learned from my brother's dying how to play the end of the play mm. uh, and it's been um, this the whole play has been a kind of memorial to him and he'd have liked all of this a lot he'd have liked all the stuff and I I I sincerely hope that he's hanging around somewhere because it uh, would would mean a great deal to him. But that was a time in which, in which life informed work, but in a way that I couldn't. It's interesting. After we came back and began working again for this production, the production of Wit that's going on now, people said that the end of the play was different, hmm. and I hadn't consciously. Uh, 
changed it, but I just knew more. And I think that that happens, it's one of the luxuries of playing a play for a long time or being able to go back to it. Because every time you go back to it, you know more not only about the play, but, you know, whatever has happened to you in the interim informs the play. And it's a wonderful, it's wonderful to have the play so much in your mind and your muscles Mm -hmm. that you can, uh, you don't, there comes a time, mercifully, when you don't have to worry about where you're supposed to be and what you're saying. Um, you can just, you, that's there, and life begins to inform the work, and it's uh, a wonderful thing. That's the good thing about a long run. People always say, do you get bored? And if the writing's good, I think not, or I mean, eventually you get bored. But uh, not for a long time, because life and your relationship with the audience and what happens to the company, the way it changes. Um, is always informing it, and then the director comes back and tells you to put it back the way it's supposed to be, which is always good to take out the improvement. Where did you learn all these things that you're now putting into place? Where did you start? I, uh, I didn't, I actually, I, I acted when I was a kid in high school. I grew up in California, in Oakland, California, and I was in a, in a theater group there taken there by somebody and my father used to come and take me away at midnight saying that I'd been a slave. To, um, and then I went to college thinking that I was going to study the theater and I didn't. I studied classical Greek instead and I was on my way to getting a master's degree in classical Greek and I met my now husband and said to him, you know, I really don't want to teach Greek in prep school. And he said, um, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I always wanted to be an actor. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And so I did, and I began in a strange way. I didn't ever go to acting school. We were married. I went to Europe, and I studied in Europe with someone. And then we came back, and I, we moved to New York when I was 28. And I began to study with Wynne Handman. And I've worked in the theater in New York for 26 years, um, doing mostly new plays and being incredibly lucky in the writers that I've worked with. My first big thing was Jules Pfeiffer's Hold Me, um, so, and, then, and then Sister Mary. So I've, I've m- made my way slowly, and I've been lucky because I've, been able, I've had the luxury of staying in New York and, and doing, doing what I like. Matthew? Yes. What's your story? <laughs> yeah, what's your story? Yeah, yeah what's your story? <laughs> I, um, my whole life. I, <laughs> <laughs> I do a quick talk, sure. Four minutes. Four, four minutes? Yeah. Start there. Debut. Um, my debut was in uh, Torch Song Trilogy when I was 19 Before years that. old. Before that? 17. Okay, when I was... Uh, well, you come out of a theater family, too, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> we know it better than you. Yeah, that's right. In the beginning, there was... Long, yeah. Family yeah. business. Well, there was Adam and Eve, <laughs> and then uh, a lot of generations, and then uh, my father uh, was James Broderick, an actor uh, who I grew up watching on stage uh, kind of all over the country. Um, I spent a lot of summers at various... The O'Neill summer stock places more, and uh, watched him, and uh, I guess that's where I started wanting to be an actor. Although I didn't really admit that for years until I was in my late teens in high school, and then I started uh, really 
is where I learned most of my acting school type stuff was in high school, believe it or not, you know. It gets a bad reputation sometimes, Here in town? I think. Yeah, at Walden, which doesn't exist anymore. But I did three plays a year, you know, and I, and I learned a lot. And um, uh, after that, I went, I studied with Uta Hagen a little bit. And then I was lucky enough uh, to get a job when I was 19, which was uh, Torch Song Trilogy uh, with Harvey Firestein, <laughs> which is a great way to begin because uh, <laughs> you've seen everything. You got all scar tissue for the rest of your life. Literally fist fights backstage. And that led to uh, Brighton Bright Beach, Beach with this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time as I got cast in Brighton Beach, I got a movies and then everything. Uh, the same day they cast him in uh, Max Dugan's Return, and he got when when I went out from my last audition, they said we're going to be playing it with Matthew, and we just cast him in our movie too. Oh. So oh, he right. he, he did I, the movie first. Yeah, and I was yeah. so excited that day. Uh, yeah. Mostly by the play, I thought Brighton Beach was such a fantastically good part yeah. and uh, and a wonderful play and uh, Neil Simon who I thought really was a factory that made shows I didn't know it was a, a guy until that day <laughs> yeah. there he was you know and uh, I just was so uh, delighted to, to get that role Jean Sachs Jean Sachs yes. yeah. was her bras it was her bras if that's interesting her bras cast, cast, cast me and all of us, us. and then Jumped ship about get to you. a few weeks before. And what was your like? casting change? That's right. Thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask. Uh, uh, I wanted to. Liz I want to know about Elizabeth on that side, about her okay, life. Okay, that's where I was going. Actually, oh, yes. okay. But I also, but I also yeah. wanted to find as okay, we go out. along. Uh, yes, as, no, we as still we go have along. a half a minute, but we'll take that another minute. Uh, as we go along, also to discuss a little bit because so many, all of you have had uh, screen experience as well is the differences in how you scale. But t tell us about your, your life. <laughs> My life. Uh, I, I saw, uh, I've, I've always wanted to be an actor since I was five years old. I was either a missionary or an actress. My mother wanted me to be a missionary. I, I feel it's the same thing. But it is anyway, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, same, totally the same thing. But anyway, uh, so... Uh, living conditions. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, uh, saw in the Seventeen magazine back in Akron, Ohio, of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I went there at 19. I, I left Ohio and came to New, New York and went to the American Academy. But the, the beautiful thing, what happened to me, mo all my training came from a, a wonderful couple that ran one of those, uh, they're now almost all gone, summer theaters, where you can go and you can do 16 plays in 16 weeks, and you can do you do everything in that. Uh, you, you 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 do the stage managing, you do the lights, you do uh, you learn theater, and you learn how to just get characters and create them and get up there and and do it. And I spent about four years with them uh, in my early 20s. Also, I was always told which is interesting, my graduation from the American Academy, the president said, you probably will not work until you are Millie Dunnick's age. Now, Millie ah, Dunnick, sure. you know, because I was always an older that. soul. Yeah. I was an older soul. So I said, do you mind if I try? And she said, no, you can try, you know. I remember that day so, so clearly. And of course, now Millie Dunnick originated Linda Lohman uh, many years ago, 50 years ago.
And uh, so uh, then I, uh, from there, from the summer theater, um, they created a, they were, a new play was being created up there. Uh, One Night Stands of B.B. Fenstermaker was a very old play, and it came to New York. And I then understudied all those characters. I was playing a woman who was in her 60s, so there was no way when I came to New York that I was going to play this mother. Uh, so I, I understudied all the women. And then it just it, it went from there on. What was the summer theater, just out of curiosity? It uh, was called a Dorset Playhouse up in Dorset, And what was Vermont. the couple, just for yeah, posterity? Oh, please, yes. Uh, Pat and Fred Carmichael. And she was a director, actress, and he was a writer, actor. And they, uh, I, I give them my life. I mean, they, they, I would not be here if it weren't for them. Great. You're a product of University of California? Well, yeah, but I... And Rada, I, too. You were... Well, Lambda. Uh, 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 Lambda, sorry. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the other right. one. So the other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back, yeah. So. It was, for some reason, it was my dream to go to an English drama school. I was a real Anglophile, and, and um, so I, I got accepted for London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and went there for two years and came back. Um, I mean, I look back now, and I think I would have been better off. I think I would have gone further, faster, had I gone to Juilliard or Yale, you know, because I would have had a network, I would have known people. Came back, wonderful training, but I came back cold. Nobody knew me. I knew nobody. And, but I worked for years in regional theater just all over the place, Manitoba, Canada, Cincinnati, Ohio, Charles Playhouse in Boston, the Arena Stage. I mean, just the Goodman, everywhere. And... Um, then I finally got um, a show in New York, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man and the Moon Miracles, in which I was sort of playing a, a nice little cameo. And then I was understudying the two girls, and then I got to play both parts for the next... They both, like, left rather quickly after, and I played both of them for the next two years. But, um, but it's just... Um, it's been a long, hard haul. <laughs> How did you get those original jobs? Oh, the original jobs, they had, I don't know, they must still have them, the Theater Communications Group, PCG yes. auditions. Yes, they do. They and I came back from Lambda, and I did those, and I did my, you know, my three-minute classical and my three-minute modern, whatever. And um, I got all of these, um, you know, people want to talk to you. You get this little list of, you know, offers or people who want to talk. And various people, and then Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, I went there for a, a big, long, uh, like a s long summer season and did, you know, five plays or whatever and, and just uh, went from there, you know, but heavy, he slow going, slow going, long. But thank heavens for regional theater, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. We would not be here if we weren't, you know. A great yeah. yeah. You're a Columbia. Well, I went to Columbia, <coughs> but I didn't, uh, I didn't do any acting there. Uh, I played football at Columbia, and then I was in the Marine Corps for five years, and, um, and during a disturbance in the s Southeast <laughs> Asia. Five years? <coughs> but about five years in the Marine Corps. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. And then I got out, and uh, by that time I had a wife and uh, two kids with one on the way. And so my father uh, expected me to go to law school or graduate school or whatever, and, and for some unaccountable reason, I said, no, I want to be an actor. <laughs> Well, you know, to an Irish working-class family in Brooklyn, uh, especially when you have two kids, this was uh, kind of an unusual announcement to make. What brought you to that feeling? I have no idea. I had done some acting in high school. Um, had a wonderful high school teacher. We probably all can yeah. mention some yes. person yes, so. who mm -hmm. changed our lives. And this guy's name was Chris Sweeney, and he was a tough, 
working class. Uh, but w there, there are these wonderful Irishmen who are intellectuals, self-made intellectuals. He was a reader and a thinker and a philosopher. And he got me started acting in uh, uh, this high school in Brooklyn, this very tough Catholic high school, all boys, um, ties, jackets and ties. And in those days, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't this ban on corporal punishment. <laughs> They'd whack you just as soon as Whoa. look at you. In fact, I remember many times walking down the hall, whack! Brother, what did I do? He said, nothing. That's just, just a warning. <laughs> just, you know, keep me up. The warning was to make sure you, you keep your eyes open at all times. Anyway, we did, uh, I guess it's okay to say Macbeth in here, right? I was 14 years old. Bob Robert Klein was telling me last night that he makes a point of going into the theater all the time and saying, Macbeth, Macbeth. Oh, stop. <laughs> 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 Right, we all have performances tonight. Anyway, so, uh, don't do that. Don't ever do that. No. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, I played, I did Macbeth at 14. <laughs> and, uh, in front of this very tough audience, okay? This is 500 really tough Brooklyn Irish Catholic kids, Italian Catholic kids. And people always say, God, boy, that was really really tough, brave thing to do. And I said, you think that was brave? You should have seen the poor kid who played Lady Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. He was dressed up in a dress, and he came out and gave his best shot. For all I know, he may still be wearing it. But, uh, but that's how it all started. But then I got away from it for 10 years. And then when I came back from the service, I just said, you know, I, one of the good things about the service is that, uh, at least in my case, it, you know, you... You, go, you, you, you mature quickly. You have to. So you get through all that stuff that you have to usually put up with in your 20s and 30s, trying to, and you really get to the end, you're saying, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Because this is a precious piece of time. And this is what I decided to do. So 10 years of driving cabs and driving trucks and working in bars, and, and I was an overnight success. <laughs> How did, what was the first job? Was it in film or? Oh, it, was a fa it was a great day. It's stories probably. Uh, I was, I'll never forget, I was doing a tour with Harold J. Kennedy. Remember Harold? Mm -hmm. Sweet old man. Doing a summer tour, playing a small part. Came back, was up at the Equity Lounge. This was one week in July of, I don't know, 72 or 73. And someone said, you know, they're casting this play uh, comedians, and there's a, they're, they're trying to find this Irish comic, Mike Nichols and so forth. I called my agent who could not, you know, <laughs> was not very particularly interested in me or my career. All right, I'll make a phone call. So I went over to the cattle call, right? There's 300 guys standing in line. You walk out on stage, there's a work light, it's just like all the movies. This stage manager is reading the lines and, you know, chewing gum at the same time and maybe drinking coffee. And there are three people out in the dark you can't even see. And it just happened to be the casting director. And I read this for this part of McBrain, who's a Northern Irish comic. Very funny. He tells a joke. And I know how to do the Northern Irish dialect, which is tricky. And I had met a friend of mine who was standing in line with me, Chris McCarran, who's an Irish actor. And, you know, he was a carpenter and I was a bartender. This is what we really were. And um, <coughs> 15 minutes, she's trying to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Forget it. This is better. And I, so, runs all the time. You know, you know, yeah, and we were standing in line. He said, listen, we'll have coffee. Uh, 
you know, I'll meet you at the Howard, the Howard Johnson's. It used to be right there on yeah. Times Square. I said, okay. It still is. Still, it's still there? Yeah. It's the only thing that's still there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I go out and I read, and it was good. I know it was good. Not that I thought anything was going to lead to anything, but it was just good. Something, I can still remember it. So I walk out through the stage doors, this long line of guys all standing there, and Chris is waiting outside in the alleyway. And I walk up to him, and I can still remember this vividly. I'm 37 years old, 38 years old, and I've been doing this for too long. As we're walking down the alleyway, the door bangs open, and it's one of the casting people. She says, Brian. And I stop, and I turn around. She said, can you come back this afternoon at 2 o'clock? And I can still remember it was like this finger. It just came down and just touched me on my head. And I can still remember looking at Chris and him looking at me, and everything was different. And it was. I came back that afternoon for Nichols and Trevor Griffiths, blew the walls out. I mean, it was just, and that's, I remember Mike Nichols walking down the aisle after the audition. And he stopped and he looked at me for a minute and he said, where did you come from? <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when it all started. And it started in that minute. It was interesting because, I mean, everything up to it was preparation for it yeah. in some funny way. But I'm one of the people who can actually point at that particular mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. and say, that's when it changed. And mm. it did, big time. Mm. Wow. Mm. That's what gives everybody hope. Yeah. In the theater, yeah. Yeah. That, that that moment comes along. Keep that. That's what it's all I'm going to just take a second to explain why, uh, for some of you sailors here, why you don't whistle on stage. You don't whistle on stage because in Elizabethan England and in and and uh, in the theaters, the most of the stagehands who knew rigging were sailors. And when you wanted to drop a sail, you whistled. Oh. So if you whistled on stage, someone would drop something on your head. Oh. And that's why you never whistle on stage. And that's the derivation of it. A little bit of history. These seminars are so weird. Yeah, it's full of trivia, but that's why you'd never do that, because someone would drop something on your head. The that's old good. sailors would do that. Yeah. That stopped that. everything in its track, yeah, but there we go. It's very important. <laughs> now it's just a button on a computer. Yeah. Though, you know? That's right, and yeah, you still get hit on the head. It doesn't work half the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's, the, that's an interesting technical problem that people have to be prepared for. What to do when the set stops. <coughs> and it does. It does. Oh, yeah. Oh, it does. We had it several times. We've had several times. We several to. times. And then the stage right. ladies and gentlemen, that if you'll excuse us for a moment, they can stop the play right <laughs> And in fact, in, in Chicago, we lost two shows, right? Well, we in New York, we had a preview audience. We had a big preview audience. And of course, my friend Brian Cox happens to be there. Now. He's like a Jonah. <laughs> Every time he comes, you can be convinced that it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> and the round table stopped three or four times that night. Oh. The minute he walked through the door, I knew what was... <laughs> <laughs> How much rehearsals did you have? Uh, we, we started rehearsals January 10th, and we opened February 10th. February but we had 10th. rehearsed it, and we had yeah. to put in a few new people. And, uh, but we... Uh, we pretty much knew, it was pretty much, mm -hmm. hasn't really much changed much from Chicago. No, it hasn't. No, it's just deepened. No. How often have you seen this? How I've seen it? I, I have never, never, actually, funny thing is I've never seen them. Yeah. I've seen them, I saw them, Lee J. Cobb uh, movie of the television show. Mm -hmm. And I saw Volker Schlondorf's movie with Dustin, which was terrific. And um, 
Uh, my, my whole thing about Willie, I was much more interested. I mean, Willie is Willie, uh, but I was fascinated by the uh, <coughs> the element of uh, mental illness. Mm. That was the study that I did. I did a lot of work on depression and bipolar uh, uh, presentation. What, what happens when somebody is losing control and stuff like that, and is swinging back and forth? And so that's really the only. Uh, Different Your kind wonderful of gesture. Is that you or the director? Well, I was. Uh, I, 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 I watched films of um, severe bipolar uh, depressives, and there was this constant thing going on all the time, mm -hmm. flicking, touching gestures. It's so an I didn't extraordinary go, piece. I didn't want to go that far with it, yeah. but I use it from time to time. And then the pockets, hands flicking in the pockets. Mm. They're always checking to see if they're there, you know? Mm. And, uh, Anyway. Was that you or with No, that was that was my your director. No, that was me. No. <laughs> Bob just kept saying I kept saying to Bob in in Chicago and Elizabeth was there and I kept saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I mean this I have no idea. And he's he keep he kept saying, Don't think about it, just do it. Because Willie doesn't get out think. of your head, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Willie's not an intellectual type, he doesn't leave an, an examined life. So the last thing you should do is examine it, I guess. Mm -hmm. but, uh, anyway. Well, let's, let's talk also about because uh, we talked about uh, seeing screening or, or films of this. I, I, I personally feel that, for instance, just parenthetically, that that uh, Death of a Salesman is a play, and it is it is quintessentially play. a play. Exactly you can right. fool around with it uh, on, on the on, on the screen, but but it's a play. It never works. What, and it it's doesn't really because of the intimacy and the bouncing off of acting. But if you would tell, because you all have had this experience in film and and television. How do you scale your acting? What do you do differently, or do you do nothing differently for this? I mean, you all have this. I think any good actor naturally plays the size of the room without thinking about it. Um, it's, uh, you know, obviously very different for camera because there's, you know, they seldom see your legs, and it's <laughs> I mean, unless it's a really long shot, then it doesn't matter what's happening on your face. I mean, you, you, you know, you get to know these things. It's here, it's here, and then it's here. Um, and I think you have so much less responsibility as an actor oh, yeah. in the movies because someone else is making all of the artistic choices on the stage. Everyone on the stage is responsible for the whole yeah, meal. So much more control. Whereas in the movies, not only at the moment is someone else making the decisions, but in the editing room, whole lots of decisions that you have nothing to do with. So that in a way, it's a, it's relaxing and narcissistic in a way that the theater isn't you know for that m moment that you're in the movies all attention is focused but i always feel that the actors aren't quite grown-ups in the movies mm -hmm. and actors are grown-ups in the theater i don't because you made lots more movies so. well the thing about the movies is there's always a car outside to pick you up and take you to the show oh well there's that too <laughs> the theater you got to get there yourself <laughs> oh we have they our do, buses they though. do treat you like like adults in the theater there's no question about that I mean, nobody's going to call me and pick me up. And take me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think personality counts for enormous amount in film. There's a great story about Akim Tamirov, who is doing, who did a picture with Gary Cooper called "The General Died at Dawn." Tamirov was from the Moscow Art Theater, and he was one of the great Stanislavski, and he had worked with all these guys. And I guess had come uh, to America uh, after the revolution, and went to uh, Hollywood, and was a very powerful an interesting screen actor for many years. 
And Robert Preston told me this story before he died. I love him. He was one of the great guys. Preston was under contract at Paramount, <coughs> and so was Tomarov. And they met at a coffee shop, and he says, Tommy, how you doing? He says, he says Bob is the damnedest thing. <laughs> he says, I'm making this picture in Northern California called the General Died at Dawn. I am working with this lox, Gary Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gary Cooper, big, tall man, he can't act at all. I'm telling you, Bob, this man is no actor. He is terrible. He does nothing. He stands there. Nothing. <laughs> I, by the way, am brilliant in this picture. I am wonderful in this movie. I am acting my ass off. Everybody's watching it. <laughs> we don't see a dailies for six weeks. We finally come back to where we can see dailies to some civilization. They put dailies in, and I, Hakim Tamirov, am watching Gary Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the way it is. I mean, you, you take those close-ups of somebody like Cooper, and you can't take your eyes off. Mm -hmm. It's all in the eyes in film. Yeah. But the other thing about film and television is... You miss that magic word, rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that's what I love about the theater. You have that gestation period. You know, you go home, you sleep on it, you have a day's rehearsal, you sleep on it, your subconscious goes to work on the material, and the whole process, you know, in film, it's, I mean, you arrive the night before in location, you have a 6 a.m. call, at 6.30, you meet the guy playing your husband. You say, okay, we're going to start with the scene where he tells you he's leaving you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like... Well, worse, you get into bed. Yeah, you get into bed, right. I think that, that acting in film is harder, really, than in the theater, because it's done in such short clips. Or in the theater, you're really living it, and you're bringing it, the whole thing begins to make sense to you as the story unfolds and you keep on going. But suddenly in, in, in movies, they have just this scene completely out of context. Well, there, there's and have to but there's, there's something that's an easy thing to do. How do you do that? Harder too. in a way, but not. You can do anything. Be because you have yeah. to, you go home at night and, oh, I've got to learn my lines, and it's, it's one page, you know, oh. where you say, uh, <laughs> I'll get that and uh, <laughs> see you tomorrow. Get the card, George. That's a day. And then you shred it and you never ever do that scene again and then it's a whole new yeah, thing the next so, so day. The variety some, of Some ways you can there. focus a lot, almost too much in a film. You get like, well, I wonder if I should open the door with my right hand when I say... <laughs> right. Whereas on the stage you would just be like, I have that scene coming, so let me get that door open mm -hmm. so he can come in. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, which is, I like, it's, it's something very the nice The thing about, about this stage is it's primitive. Little, I mean, the whole point yeah. about the theater yeah. is that yeah. it's yeah. primitive. Yeah. It's, it's you and the audience. Okay, 10,000 years ago in Salamanca, Spain, there was some guy up in a cave telling a story with his gestures and so forth. And that's what we do. I mean, uh, there are no filters. There's no director. There's no editor. It's just you and the audience. And uh, th so that there is a basic quality to the theater that doesn't exist in film. And, and when it works, it works like nothing else. Yeah. 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 Everybody knows that, you know, mm -hmm. it, and it, and it <coughs> works, it continues to work even if, if you've ever had the experience of taking someone who's never been to the theater, to the theater, and, and watch it happen. They are And it can only happen in the theater. That's the yeah. tragic thing about you should pardon the expression, the Disney, Disney-fication of, of, um, uh, uh, of Broadway, because those things are wonderful. I mean, uh, Lion King's great fun. I think it's beautifully staged, and there's a lot of stuff to watch it, to, s to care about. But when you see a play like Wit, or Death of a Salesman, uh, or, or Iceman Cometh, you can be changed. 
by that. Yeah. I mean, something can happen in that theater. I watch it every night. I watch people, not everybody, and not every night. But <clears throat> something can happen in the theater that just doesn't happen in films and will never happen in films. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the exciting thing is in one of the Wings programs of bringing youngsters to the theater, mm -hmm. the majority of them have never been to a Broadway theater, never been to Broadway, never been out of their, their uh, own neighborhood. <sighs> But in the minute you say there are tickets available for a show on live theater, the hands go up immediately. They don't know what they're going to see, mm -hmm. but the magic of that word, of live theater, and they've been reared on television well, or student, movies. Student matinees. Now, oh, but live have theater. Oh, that's so exciting. The best. Love the best. Have they been Absolutely. coming to Nightmare School? Too? Yeah. We that had must be incredible. And I thought them. this is uh, 1935 in the countryside mm -hmm. in Britain. They're going to not understand there? a word yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And they were just like, there. so they're fabulous. Yeah, and afterwards they understood everything. They great religion. They're either really good or really bad. They were great. But they're Not from Seward Park, and I want to say that was true of everybody and every audience. The kids are absolutely honest, though. I mean, that you know if you haven't got the kids. Right. Yeah, talk about coughing. Whoa. Killer! Play good guys. I, I somehow think of you always as a good guy. Yeah. But uh, now you're having well, an opportunity a good to be guy. the bad guy. A yeah. good guy, bad guy. But you get, you get did that, yes. what, that attracted you to the part? Or what well, was it was it? nice to think of, yeah, because I, do, I don't ever get to, to, to do that very rarely. Mm -hmm. And um, he's an angry person. Is <laughs> yeah. he insane? Is this what you come to the conclusion? Well, he did more research yeah, than that's me. That's I don't what know. Yes, I, I suppose he is. I, I think, though, he has his reasons, you know. Uh, I, he is insane because rather than just get mad and yell at somebody, he puts a pillow over their head and stuff like that. <laughs> but but um, he's a very resentful uh, servant from a time when servants or that class had no chance to uh, better themselves. And he's as bright as anybody around him. And he just does not like taking orders from people at this point in his life, I guess. I mean, that's a very general way to put it. But, and he has a problem with his mom and women things. He's got a few issues there, too. But, but uh, I think based the, the one thing that isn't so crazy and is understandable is his just tremendous resentment at being working class in uh, England at that time. Oh, real rage. He's rage. You have to now take orders from me because we have to stop for just a minute and you can all stretch and you can turn around and then come back to your seats immediately but we start right again on this wonderful panel of working in the theater so. <laughs> This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to our panelists, I'd like to tell you that the Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Awards, which are given for excellence in the craft of theatre. We are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community 
with the goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, like uh, Introduction to Broadway, which began seven years ago and has enabled more than 75,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show. For many of them, for the very first time, and through our newest program, Theater in School, theater professionals like these in our seminar panels go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have our hospital program, which dates back to World War II, and our legendary stage door canteen. Today's version of the program utilizes talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers, now all in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater itself. We are proud of the work we do and happy for the wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. And we are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theater Wing does possible. And now, let's get back to our performance seminar. And I'd like to start part two with a question to the panel. I'd like to know, what is your favorite role? What it brought to you, <coughs> what it meant to you. Could you start with that? Kathleen, why don't you? Kathleen? That's always a hard question, because I, the, the role I'm doing now is my favorite role now. <laughs> Up till now, then. Up till now, I guess. Um, I, I, I've been, as I said, very lucky. So I've had the, all the six people I played in Angels in America were astounding. Um, I don't know. I can't answer this question in a very sensible way. That was my answer. Henry V. Oh, and Henry V. Well, that was nice, too, though I wasn't playing Henry. I know. <laughs> Would have been nice. Um, well, it's like picking a, a sibling over another in a way, so I, I hate to do it, but I, I guess Eugene Morris Jerome, really, you know, <laughs> if I really was being honest, which I did with Elizabeth. That was a wonderful time, and sort of the first time I'd been on Broadway. And a tougher so. question than why? Well, it fit me and my mood at that period. You know, every now and then a part comes at the right time for you and the, or whatever happens that all, the, all these lucky things have to happen and the cast you're with. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a great thing. Uh, great Elizabeth family. was a, just a vicious uh, adversary <laughs> as, as, the, as my mom. And, uh, <laughs> we would fight over cookies and butter and milk and shopping and roller skates and they were battles yes, yes. and it was just great fun <laughs> it was wonderful wasn't it that was a great time weren't we great we were <laughs> very good and we were innocent we were terribly innocent because yeah. we we had never been on broadway ever yeah. before neil found all of us off broadway except yeah. when joyce joined us out in, yeah, in she was california a, a ringer. She was the ringer, and, 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 and I mean, so Angelico. it was... Well, Angelico? Maybe he hadn't been on Broadway. No, not Broadway. We were yeah. all off-Broadway. That's yeah. right. And, and Peter Michael Getz. It was just an incredible family. We were all terribly innocent. We all did everything together. And we were in California for 
what, about four months, wasn't it? San Francisco and yes, L.A. and yeah. L.A. That's where we started the, the place. So was that your favorite, or do you have another one? Me? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I can't. I, I'm, I'm like Kathleen, I can't tell you. I, I mean, that would have to be between Kate and, and, and Sister Mary and now Linda Lohman. I mean, yeah. she just has possessed me with this man here. Mm -hmm. I'm possessed with him, too. <laughs> Susie. My favorite role is usually always the one I'm doing at the moment. In this case, Myrna and Myra, my favorite roles. Because I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about research and so forth and learning. It's amazing how the older you get, the more life experience you have. That in itself is rehearsal and research for whatever you're going to do. Um, I did six degrees in, at Lincoln Center years ago, and I recently did um, a kind of thing. It was a radio play of it in L.A., but we, all, we did it in front of a live audience. And it was amazing how much better I was. I mean, I, I was good at it in New York, but I mean, it was so much deeper. People would see me, through, you know, you were terrific, but this was like nine more years of life was amazing. And so to come back to something was so neat. But anyway, I, I digress. But, but I think, um, for me, it has to be the role I'm playing now because it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. It's the, the largest part I've ever done. It's the most daunting and impossible task I've ever uh, attempted. And it's me now, you know. Uh, hopefully, I'll get better and better, but it's certainly... Be and, of course, Bananas in House of Blue Leaves is always close to my heart. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that because acting on stage is the definition of existentialism, I mean, it exists while you're doing it. And then, if you're lucky, it exists in the minds and the memories of the people who have seen it, and yours as well. <clears throat> but it is totally existential. It's just happening while you're there. It would be impossible, I think, for me not to, to say that the most, you know, the most significant role is the one that I'm doing now. Because it's not only the part that you're playing now, but you're living with that character. There's no way to not live with him. I mean, there, I wake up every day with a part of me being Willie. <laughs> And I get through the day, a part of me being Willie, and thinking about what I have to do that night and trying to unconsciously, some cases subconsciously, some, some cases consciously preparing. So um, it's hard to answer that question, but I think, you know, I think Kathleen was right. It's, it's essentially what you're doing while you're doing it. I mean, it's fascinating about this business that uh, you do it and then it's gone. And then <clears throat> you do it again and it's gone again and you do it again and it's gone again. And you have a tendency to kind of forget that and think about what I'm doing tonight, what I'm doing next week, what I'm doing tomorrow. And then someone comes up to you on the street and says, you know, I saw a show a week ago or two weeks ago or 20 years ago, and I can't tell you what it means to me. That, and, and all of a sudden you realize that it does have a life. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's, it's a life that exists in someone's mind, in someone's memory. So uh, it has a significance, it has an importance that can't be quantified, but the fact is that Willie right now is the one that... But you know, it's interesting, you come off, I'm sorry, uh, you come off uh, a great hickey, too, in, in, in Iceman, and, mm -hmm. and then I, I, you know, you did Cornelius Melody. Condolity, I love Condolity. Yeah, and, you know, but somehow those 
characters in my head are related in terms oh, of yeah. the fantasy oh, yeah. world and yeah. Con Melody is uh, fortunately it's a play that uh, Bob Falls and I had a history up until this one of doing plays that people talked about and people thought were great plays but were never done we did Galileo we did Iceman Cometh and we did uh, Touch of the Poet <clears throat> interestingly enough the most orphaned of that three is Touch of the Poet it was never actually prepared for production, even by O'Neill. Uh, and it's a wonderful play. It's a great play. And so there was always a tendency to kind of look at those stepchildren and say, God, I wish more people could have seen that. Um, so yeah, it's, Khan, is a, Khan is a great character. But there is a relationship. I, it's fa fascinating to me that now, in 1999, this winter in New York, you would have Iceman Cometh and Death of a Salesman playing. These were plays that were written within... Uh, well, O'Neill probably wrote most of Iceman in 1939-1940. It wasn't, wasn't produced until about 1945. Obviously, the war intervened. But Miller certainly had to be affected by the play, uh, uh, influenced by it to some extent. And uh, it's interesting that at a time when America was at the apogee of its power and its self-confidence and its success and it comes through the war, that these two very... <laughs> kind of dismal <laughs> plays about yeah. being American and being uh, uh, what America was all about would, would be produced. But, um, and for them both to be revived successfully some 50 years later, it's a very interesting uh, coincidence. I was wondering, as you've done so much research into the <coughs> mind and character of Willie, if you knew what he has in the suitcases, or is it all metaphorical? Well, that's, it's funny because uh, <laughs> Arthur is very adamant about that. When everybody asks that's him, and right. people always that's ask him, right. what is <laughs> Willie selling? And Arthur says himself. And you tell yourself that as well? I never, they look really yeah, heavy. Himself is himself, <laughs> and it gets harder and harder to carry those bags because he's, he's got, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot more... Uh, rocks in those suitcases <laughs> as he gets older. But I, I, I go along with Arthur's uh, answer to that question. He's carrying himself. How long is it with you after you, the curtain comes down? And, and how, how much do you bring? Mm. How soon do you have to start thinking about it? Or does but it begin I, to take place before the curtain goes up? I think now it's, there's a more, more relaxed element to it. I mean, if I get through the last ten minutes and I haven't had a coronary, <laughs> there's no paramedics on stage <laughs> pumping on my chest, then uh, there is a certain amount of gratitude involved. And, uh, um, but uh, it, you know, you, there's just this wonderful uh, ambivalence that you have where you really enjoy doing the part and you can't wait till it's over. Mm -hmm. At the same time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 You guys have the penultimate scene and you think, ah. Oh. One more entrance. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then what happens? Then do but then you take the bow, and, the, and, right. the, and, the, and the, the bow's... A, the, what's fascinating about this production, and it's unique in my history, now, I get a big kick out of coming out and looking out as you take the bows because you see the damnedest expressions on people's yeah. faces. Mm -hmm. Stunned. Tears. And Tears. The, Sobbing. And their yeah. faces are just open in a way that you rarely see people's mm -hmm. faces open. I mean, they're just... Yes. This moved in some way, and that's you know that's. I've the, not ever heard the silence that comes after that wonderful last mm. line mm. there, in any of the productions I've seen. How about wit? I would yes, think yeah, yes. that must stay with you too. And then uh, what's with you, Miss? It, it, well, it does. So the end, because the end of wit is so triumphant. Sure, it is. it's a different issue than Death of a Salesman. There's a, 
it's a moment of grace at the end of the play. And I, people always asked, how could you, to, you know, die eight times a week? And <laughs> I think it is because of that. I think that if the play ended somewhere else, it would be much more difficult to do. I didn't realize that until I was doing it, doing it for a while. And I had the same experience that Brian was saying to look out at the audience and see people's response and people hang around. Mm -hmm. They want to. After the play. Mm -hmm. We have talkbacks every yeah. Tuesday night and 70% of the audience stay. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, by the time we come out, there are people still kind of hanging around the theater and I think it's a safe place in a way. And we have been for the last week uh, raising money for Doctors Without Borders. And people's response has been astounding. We raised $16,000 in one week with a curtain speech and two actors oh, carrying baskets. Wow. It is the people, it's an, an, an example of what the, the power of the theater, what we've all been talking about, that people are opened in all sorts of ways. When they, great. When they cast you in this, did they tell you you would have to shave your head? Yes, they told me I have to shave my head in the other part. I'm naked in a part in the play, but oh. that's in the stage directions. And so you're reading the play, and my brother, as you know, had read the play too. So read the play, and I got the part, and I was worried about being bald, but I thought I could manage that. But then my brother said, what are you going to do about the nudity? And I said, nudity? <laughs> <laughs> That was harder. <laughs> you mentioned vows, something we've never talked about. Do you take direction on vows? How much attention is given to, to taking vows at the end of curtain calls? Depends on the director. I'm always fascinated by the difference in, in curtain calls. I'm always suspicious of a, a production where the curtain calls are more carefully directed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've hand, seen a few like that. Yes. It's important to do curtain because it's ungracious not to... You know, there's knowledge. some, but you go through a whole period where everybody says, oh, I don't know, curtain calls, I don't know, bow or anything. And it seems un that's ungracious, too, so you have to... You have, have to let the audience have their yeah. moment. Should Say. you stay in character when you do your... I don't think so, no, really. You, <laughs> <not> really. <laughs> you don't want to break the I mood? I think that's the time to, to say it, it mm. was a play, in yeah. a way. That's the time for everybody, for us and the audience, to say, we've been watching a play, and now we're back to... <laughs> Our life, sort of. Yeah, and sometimes you'll have a night where there just aren't any laughs, and you think, well, what's happening here? And and then the curtain call, they're just, like you said, you look out and see the faces, and it's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just and all the that. time, they've just been going like that, but they don't <laughs> laugh out loud. You well, know, maybe they're yeah. glad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, that never occurred to me. <laughs> don't think about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they do get more energetic sometimes. You know, right towards the It's not easy to applaud while you're putting your coat on it. <laughs> 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 Sometimes they do look back while they're putting the coat on. Right, <laughs> right, 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 as they're walking up the aisle. Yeah. What about people who come in late? Does that, oh. Do you notice that? Oh, oh, yeah. oh no, that. <laughs> we, have, we have this You're really... I mean, it's interesting because uh, <laughs> Miller wrote this very delicate scene at the beginning of the play, which actually has the whole play in the scene. It tells you exactly what's going to happen. And you have latecomers, and the flashlights, and the murmurings, and the rustlings, and... It's maddening because, because there aren't so many people out there, it's just like Matthew said before, who really want to watch it and listen to it. 
And you have to remember that they're the majority and you're playing to them. But, uh, you know, that's the thing. You just have to get that stuff behind you. You just mm -hmm. have to not worry about it and just keep on going. I mean, the telephones and the pay <laughs> on. <laughs> and then the ones that put on the earphones and crank it all the way up. <laughs> so you get this feedback. We had some questions from the audience. And I, there are so many that, that, that I'd like to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's start with them right now for these young people. Hi, my name is Breelin, and my question is for all of you. I'm wondering what kind of preparation you do every night from the time you walk in the door of the theater until the curtain goes up. I find that I can't prepare for an entire play. You know, I can only go moment to moment. I can only prepare really for, for my opening scene. I mean, I, I try to do beyond. You know, I go, oh, I have that breakdown in act two. I better get you know, worked up. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I, it's yeah. too far It's too far down the line. There are too many moments between now and then. So I just take it one step at a time. I, I had the great privilege of working with Peter Brook. And uh, he said a fascinating thing. He came back to see the show after four weeks. We did Cherry Orchard in Brooklyn. And after ripping us to shreds for 20 minutes about what had happened, he began to say, he said something that was really very interesting. He said, now look, he said, you're all preparing to go on stage. He said, no one prepares to live their life. You've done that. You've rehearsed the play. You walk on stage. Let the play happen to you. In my case, it's fascinating. Howard Witt, who plays Charlie, because I'm saying to myself, how do I, my God, how do I get ready to do this? And Howard Witt said, go out and pick up the bags. Yeah, mm -hmm. start with them. And, uh, you know, the preparation really has been done. I mean, there are people who do all kinds of exercises and and there are certain physical preparations that make sense. But, you know, the thing to do is to go out there and let the play happen to you. Next question. Hi, my name is Nandita Shinoy, and my question is directed to Mr. Dennehy. Um, before that golden moment that you described earlier in the program, I'm wondering what kept you going in the craft. I don't know. Stubbornness, <laughs> probably, more than anything. I can't tell you how many people said, used to say to me, and there's this actor. You're not an actor. You don't look like an actor. You don't sound like an actor. And I couldn't disagree. You know, it wasn't like... My father was one of them, by the way. Who, with him, it was a mantra, you know. Errol Flynn is an actor. You know, yeah. But uh, I don't know. You know, the funny thing is that... Errol uh, Flynn. As I look back on it now, and I, I, uh, I don't know why I kept doing it. It's... Because God knows it was not easy. I, was, I never had any training because I was working. I mean, I was driving a cab, I was driving a truck, I was supporting a family at the same time I was trying to make it in the business. So um, I'll be damned if I know. <laughs> Thank you. Mildred Clinton for Kathleen Chalfant. You played a number of roles in Angel on Broadway. I never look at a, at a program before. I like to see if I can recognize people or how they change or what they do. You played several parts, and then a rabbi came on. And I couldn't get over the, the verity of that, that characterization. He was wonderful. I don't know why it struck me that way as a character. And I had to look through and see. And there I saw the ultimate exposition of an oxymoron, <laughs> Kathleen Chalfant playing a rabbi, <laughs> in addition to the other roles. Now, you talked about research. Everybody did. How did you do any research for that? Well, I first, Mildred and I have worked together, so hi. <laughs> I also, I was very peculiar, the rabbi, because I, I was invited to be part of Angels in America at the very beginning of it. And there was a reading up in the, uh, upstairs at the New York Theater Workshop, 
and I was late for the reading and Tony gave me the script and he said you play the rabbi and the doctor and Ethel Rosenberg and the mother and I said fine and the rabbi is actually the first speech in in Millennium Approaches and this rabbi came out that came out of my mouth and that happens sometimes you know they just come out and he always was there and I never I never could figure out where he could possibly have come from and about four years later my husband and I were in the kitchen and the radio was on and they were they were playing an old Jack Benny radio program and Mr. Kitzel came on <laughs> and I realized that in my childhood year Mr. Oh, wow. Kitzel had gone and he came out waiting to be the rabbi so you never know nothing is ever waiting it took a long time before I dared tell Tony Kushner that that's where it's all this thing about hair was it facial hair yes right bald men hair whatever hello my name is Ann Block it's directed to all of you have you ever gone up on a line on Broadway and if you did how did you handle it like last every night? Every night. <laughs> <laughs> every night. <laughs> that happens a lot. I mean, uh, and to other actors, and every, hopefully everybody's paying attention and somebody will... Uh, Help you. Will, ...will get it moving again. If you sort of don't panic, mm -hmm. somehow it works out. I remember one time, though, <laughs> uh, when uh, an actor named Jelko Ivanik that's the worst I've ever seen that happen. I was doing a scene with him, and uh, he had a big monologue, and he was halfway through it, and he was at the climax of it, he said, and I put the dirt on his shoes, and then Mr. Stroheim looked at me, and uh, he looked at me, and, and um, he looked at me, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he went totally stark raving up, and <laughs> grabbed me finally in a hug, and I know what he wanted me to tell him, which was what was next. <laughs> but I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> this, this was about, uh, this was maybe eight months into the run, and I hadn't paid attention to that scene for maybe four months at that point. Because right? he talked the whole time, and I would sit there going, and I realized I, I, haven't, I have no idea what you're up to. And, uh, <laughs> the, the stage manager came, and... Uh, with the book. Oh, no. <laughs> Couldn't hear anything she was saying. It was awful. He, I remember then afterwards, sorry to blab on, but, but came, I came off stage. And from then on, I did listen, by the way. I just, that, yeah. That's something that happens when you're in a run on a long time. Sure, you have these yeah. sections where you just tune out. At least I do. I, we have this wonderful moment in the, where I get fired, this firing sequence. Uncle Ben appears. Of course, he's a dreams character. And he comes in and he says, uh, he says, and it's so critical too, it's because he says, he says, I've just bought, he says, I've been up to Alaska and I just bought a lot of timberland. The line is timberland and I need a man to run it for me. And for some reason, this particular night, and it's very heightened, I mean, you've just seen this yeah. firing sequence, the audience is, he says, I've just been to Alaska and I bought a lot of real estate. <laughs> And I need a man to run it for me. Now I'm walking over towards him, just being fired, and I'm <laughs> because now I got to turn around and say real estate. 
But I'll tell you something, real estate and Timberland are two different things. <laughs> and remember, the whole scene, he was trying to think of that word. Yeah, he was. Like, that, the, those eyes those were going. When they get those pinwheel eyes, you know, that's it. That He's up, scene. boy. And he, he never knew. <laughs> Real estate. <laughs> okay. oh, my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Kathleen Chalfant. Since this is the second play you've done in which a lead character is dying, can you tell us if there's been a difference in the way audiences have reacted to Wit and to Angels in America? I think audiences have responded differently to the two plays, but they're very, uh, they're very different plays. The thing that the thing that they have in common, I think, is that the ends of both of these plays are triumphant. And mm. people, uh, people respond to it. The people have treated both plays in the same way, as though they're safe places to come to deal with complex issues. Um, I, and and in, we know in the talkbacks that we have with Wit that, that people talk about death quite a lot. I think people want to do that. People need to do it because it's something that people don't discuss in the in the culture very much. I think the issues in Angels in America were both were political issues and issues about living. So the issue of death was not as central as it is in in Wit. I think we have time to answer one more question. Hi, my name is Melissa. I just wanted to know this question for all the panelists. What advice do you have for young aspiring actors or actresses? Go to dental school. Could <laughs> 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 you go around quickly? Only do this if you have to. If you have to do it, then do it. If you can think of something else to do, do that. Hmm. It will require every ounce of energy and hope and exertion it's climb every mountain you know for the rest of your life I mean you have to want this so badly because it's so so impossible you have to have a great passion for it a true passion and a great belief in yourself because you're not going to get that belief from other people mm-hmm. and you you just you and and you never take no for an answer and if you really have that passion there that you, you will be fulfilled eventually but it's hard. Matthew? Well, uh, I don't, my, my father once told me when I was, I auditioned for something and didn't get the part and I was like, I, I, I screwed it up or whatever and he said, maybe they screwed it up. So I think that's something that's to keep fair. in mind when you're starting. Somebody doesn't cast you, it may be, there's no reason to think they're right all the time. Just keep that in mind. But there's always a cost and the thing is, it's not just your cost. I'm sorry. You've got, you've got kids. You've got I just parents. wish that we could go on and on and on. That's the got me People have so much to say. Line. This has been the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And I want to thank this wonderful panel who have shared their knowledge, experience, and time with us and, and our gratitude sure. to our two moderators Pia Lindstrom and George White for chairing this panel so very well. I'm Isabel Stevenson, chairman of the American Theatre Wing and thank you so much for coming. Thank you all for being here.